Does your life change once a month because of your period? Oh, what a disaster. Let me tell it to you straight. Unexplainable can change the way you feel about your period. For the next two weeks, Unexplainable is doing a series on the scientific treasures hidden in periods. You wouldn't think so, but it's wonderful. Fabulous. I call it just plain smart. Remember, there's a feeling with Unexplainable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period. This week on Unexplainable, The Bleeding Edge. Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. This week on The Gray Area, Stephen Markley, author of the novel The Deluge, on why he was compelled to write an epic book about climate change. If 50 years from now we have used this period in history to turn the corner on the climate crisis, and you and I and everybody listening to this was a part of that, that is an incredible way to spend one's life. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm from our remote quarantine locations with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hello. Hey, you guys. So I think this is the first episode that we've um, taped since uh, Shelter in Place uh, went into effect in uh, New York, where we all live. And uh, I did not really know what to do. I did not... uh, know how to have a normal conversation uh during this time um i ended up uh asking charlie warzel who has been on um this podcast before he was previously a uh tech reporter at buzzfeed he is now a opinion writer for the new york times and uh you may have seen his uh work recently he wrote the uh don't go to the bars it's selfish it's not a direct quote, but that's the gist of it. Uh, piece for the Times. He also wrote the piece uh, about people who'd been river rafting and were unaware of the coronavirus pandemic until they uh, landed. Um, so it seemed like a good person to talk to in that um, he is in this very bizarre role that he's actually pretty new to. Um, and millions of people are reading what he says about what they should do with their lives. He's also not here, right? He is in Montana. So he is um, uh, speaking from afar. Well, it's good to have people that are trying to figure it out in real time since uh, everyone's trying to figure out in real time. What, what are we going to do? Like, what, what kind of shows do you think we should do uh, uh, in the next few weeks? We haven't even really talked about it. We're going we're gonna to air it out here in public, guys. Well, we got, I, I, we're working on a couple different ideas. Okay. Okay. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, no. We're, we're, the, the, I feel like the important thing is uh, we are going to keep doing the show. We're going to figure it out. We've all got microphones. There's a way to do this. We, we will figure this out. Um, we will talk to the people who are interesting to talk to. Uh, right now, and we will try to get them out uh, pretty rapidly because uh, this episode was only taped, uh, I think, two day, two or three days ago, and it already feels like uh, an eternity. And maybe we'll do a few diversions too. people who don't talk about coronavirus, <laughs> people who this hasn't impacted at all. Before we get to this interview, I just want to ask, uh, are, are you guys OK? You guys doing OK? Who, who are you guys? Me and Evan? Yeah, you and Evan. 
Uh, I'm okay. I'm. I mean, I'm. A, I'm a little down. I. Uh, you know, usually when I, um, I listen back to one of my tapings, it's there's a exhilaration of uh, listening back to one of these conversations, and uh, I just listened to this one, and there was this like strange gulf uh, uh, between I ta- when I taped it and things were bad, and I think things are worse. Now it almost made me nostalgic for um, forty-eight to seventy-two hours ago. How are you, Max? Uh, worse now. Wor- worse now. Sorry, than I, it, you I'm just sorry. made you just made me nostalgic for forty-five seconds ago. Uh, I'm not. I'm not the person to give a inspirational speech in this kind of a setting. <laughs> Evan, you good? I'm good. I'm good. I'm. I'm in a moment of considering my good fortune. I feel. I just I think Evan's uh uh long life of cynicism has perhaps prepared him well for these uh these times. Um we are brought to you as always by MailChimp. Uh their support makes the show possible. It's a great time to start an email newsletter, whether it's uh just for the uh circle of people uh you love who you're no longer able to see in person, or for strangers who could use um some comfort and some writing. So um, MailChimp, thanks to them. And now here's Aaron with Charlie Warzel. Welcome, uh, Charlie Warzel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, strange times. I uh, I didn't actually know how it would feel to tape a podcast right now. And I've like, I think me and you, we've taped so many different podcasts on different topics over time. I felt like I'd at least be comfortable talking to you. It's probably like five or six podcasts, but a collected like eight hours of conversation. So yeah, I'm very ready. I've told myself though, the one thing that I'm not going to do is when people ask me, hey, how's it going? I'm not going to say reflexively just good. Because things are not good, and uh, I'm just trying to try to be a little bit more honest about that. So, you okay? I don't remember where your life was the last time we talked, but uh, you had not started at the New York Times, I don't think. Yeah, I think it was probably like six or seven months before that. Yeah, I was still with, with BuzzFeed. I could obviously fact check this by actually looking at my own <laughs> podcast on the internet. I've been staring at the news, um, but you you made this jump from being a tech reporter to being an opinion writer. You are a part of the uh, New York Times uh, opinion page. That's right. It's a pretty different um, seat to be riding through this storm in, I would think. Yeah, it's, I mean, in some respects, I have a very weird job. And I like to tell people that I have a very weird job up front, which is kind of, it is a job that's like seated inside the opinion section of the paper, which is obviously separate from the newsroom. But I've always kind of been a reporter who does a lot of like analytical sort of take style stuff, but it's rooted in a lot of the work that I'm doing, a lot of people I'm talking to. So I have this weird title. I'm a writer at large, which basically means I can kind of figure out new ways to do opinion journalism and to see what that looks like. And some of that is just very standard. It's just columns. It's just like the the 900 to, you know, 1200 word, whatever. But other parts of that are 
you know, trying to like play around a little with the form and also trying to like see what, like, what does an opinion style investigation look like? What is an opinion style, maybe like a podcast, but what, what is like, what is the future of sort of the column, I guess, is sort of the, the kind of bullshit way I think about it <laughs> sometimes. Can I just uh, air my bias in advance, which is I generally don't like opinion. Like if there's like something that gets me kind of annoyed at the New York times, it's usually opinion, but I think in the last couple weeks, I'm not going to say that it's like changed everything I've ever thought, but I do think we are in like new terrain in which there is actually more of a role for opinion. And almost all of the New York Times stories I've seen getting passed around are either like breaking news or opinion, at least on the like front page story that's happening. Yeah, it's a a weird, weird, weird time. And I was talking to people about this last week. I think that I finally get opinion journalism in a way, like in the last three weeks that I hadn't probably beforehand. Like I I was kind of working towards it, but a lot of it was like, I'm going to do a lot of reporting and then kind of package an argument, which is also very similar to just, you know, any kind of essay. Yeah. It's like, here's like a lot about surveillance. And as you can see from my reporting, it's terrible. Right. Exactly. So (laughs) it's like crafting an argument towards a point, which is just very natural to me. It's like what I've always done. So there was no real hard transition. But in the past couple of weeks, it's what I've realized is there's just like, there's this really pure opportunity for service journalism in a way that I've just never seen before. And like the example, the purest one for me was like two weekends ago, it was St. Patrick's Day weekend. All these people are out at the bars. Meanwhile, we have like these orders of cities to sort of you know start winding down. We're not in the total shutdown lockdown mode, but social distancing is now part of the lexicon. Offices are closing. We're trying to do this thing. And I'm watching, you know, all these anecdotes come across the internet of people standing around packing bars, kind of acting like, you know, nothing's wrong. And then I woke up on I woke up on a Saturday morning and saw the lines around the bars uh, for St. Patrick's Day and people just doing the bar crawls, you know, like virus be damned. And I just wanted to yell, like, don't go out to the bars. And I was on Slack talking with one of my editors and I was like, I just want to write thinking that they would say, obviously, this is like very stupid. You shouldn't do it. Like, don't go out to the bars. And they're like, do it. And I put the headline up, which was don't go out to the bars. <laughs> And like, you know, made a kind of a short argument, but really just kind of like a plea to people. And it was the most read article of any article of any piece of journalism I've ever done. And I mean, it was a hard article to write because you don't want people to basically shut down local commerce. But there's this, you know, health imperative. But I I got like feedback, people being like, hey, you know, uh, I'm a bar owner and I closed down my bar tonight because I saw the piece and it convinced me. And I realized, you know, it was putting my workers at risk, it was putting other patrons at risk. um, And it was a hard decision, but I did it. Thank you. Or, you know, I also got people being like, hey, man, screw you. Like I have have a job. Uh, But it had this like enormous impact and there wasn't anything super elegant about it, but it was just so like pure you know i was like oh that's that's what it is like that's the like we need medicare for all or we you know whatever the thing is that's just sort of the rawest part of it and i watched the power of of it 
kind of take hold over the weekend. So this is what was interesting to me is like, obviously, I think you and I are spending like 12 hours a day on Twitter. So (laughs) at the moment that piece hit my inbox, it almost reads like the consensus of what a lot of people have decided on Twitter, like right down to like several specific details, which is like people shouldn't go out to bars. It's selfish. This is why it's selfish. If you're worried about local commerce, you should buy a gift certificate. Like, and also that this is what's going on in Italy, and this is why you should listen to it. Like, it was almost like someone had like filtered like 12 hours of Twitter, and you're like, you've only got like 700 words. <laughs> like, what are the most important parts to get in there? Which I agree is service, and it obviously had a huge impact. I mean, like I saw it everywhere. But I'm curious, like for someone who you know, has had the subtle take and the original take, what does it feel like to put out the like sort of consensus take? And I, I've i never really felt a time on the internet where it was more clear that people were sort of cohering around a group idea that was unpalatable several days ago. And then there's just some sort of a like thing where people are like, no, we're doing it. We're doing social distancing. Well, not only that, but then, like, th- that piece, you know, went pretty crazy, got a lot of readership, and then had no tail. Like, by end of Sunday, so we, one thing we did with that was, it was kind of, I started as a joke, but then realized it was probably helpful as we changed it the next morning to don't go out to brunch. So we ran it for, like, under two different headlines. Um, but then after Sunday, like, around 4 o'clock, just, it, like, traffic basically fell to zero and there was just no need. And like cities had closed their bars and restaurants. It was just like decided, you know, this story is is moving so fast that like there's just, it just kind of died down. So yeah, so there was the like, the whole wave of it was so fascinating. You have, you know, this is a ridiculous overreaction to we really need to do this to like it's done already. There's absolutely no reason this most obvious take in the world. It's like that that I've never seen before. Like I've seen things age poorly because the news kind of like moves out of it. But like the fact that it was basically irrelevant and it reads like it was written 600 years ago and it's like eight days old right now is is wild. But what you were saying earlier about trying to like distill it. I mean, th- this is what I why I felt so grateful to have the platform was I was just sort of asking myself, like, what it, like what can I do? Like everyone is looking at this is feeling really powerless over the whole thing, over the scope of it, over the speed, over the fact that it just sort of feels like this like hurricane about to make landfall and you're like standing there on the beach and it's sunny and beautiful out, but like you could tell that it's going to be really bad. And so, I mean, distilling it was actually the easy choice. It was just like, what can I, if I can do one thing right now, what can it be? Like, what is sort of the, the highest impact? And it was much more difficult to make, like, a really convincing argument for, like, the right amount of social distancing, right? Like, the, the take that's like, go to the grocery store, don't go to the bar, here's why, is, like, you know, complicated and, like, you know, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be wearing masks, but you should give masks to the doctors. And it's like that complicated, like you have to sort that out. This was kind of like, I mean, and this is sort of why it felt like the rawest form of opinion journalism that I could do is just like, if I'm going to grab somebody who's like lined up outside of a bar 
for a St. Patrick's Day crawl, like by the lapels of their jacket and just say one thing to them. Like, what is it that I would say? And I'd be like, just don't go. Like, just turn around and go home. It's the right thing to do. You'll be protecting people. And it just felt really simple, like really kind of pure in that way. And for me, this whole past two weeks has really been, I've got a couple of doctor friends, a couple of like doctor sources, and I just keep asking them like, what can we do? Like, what are the things you can do that I can do right now? Like, how can I help you guys? And, you know, I hear them say like, don't congregate in places. You know, the the piece I wrote before that also had a headline that started with please comma, and it was listen to experts. And it was like, I had these doctors telling me like, we just need you to trust us on this. Like, this is all we do. And we're usually very sober people and we're really freaked out now. And so that to me was like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to use this? Like, I'm just going to tell you to listen to these five people. What is the like, like, how do you think about your tone when you're like delivering information like that? Because it's like, the inf- it's almost like the information is the easy part. It's like, how do you tell people? Yeah, I I used to obsess. I, I mean, I guess I, I still do to some extent on tone. Like when I when I first came from BuzzFeed over the times, the feeling was sort of like, how can I signal that I'm like a younger sort of like <laughs> online person here? Like, how can I put my mark on that? How can I get some emojis into the New York Times? Anyone at the New York Times under like 45 is lying to you if they say that there isn't a competition to like get the weirdest word or phrase into the paper while also doing their jobs uh, responsibly. But there was a lot of, you know, that and worrying about the tone and really caring about it. And then I don't know, there's something about this whole crisis that is just so clarifying. And I don't really care so much about getting dragged on Twitter for sounding, you know, a little bit luxury or whatever. Uh, I feel like there's more at stake there that that kind of doesn't matter. I mean, I think one thing I did with the don't go to the bars piece is I didn't make it generational. You know, I didn't say, hey, kids, don't go out to the bars, you know, like drink White Claw at home. (laughs) Like This is also aimed at the aging alcoholics out there. (laughs) You too, guys. It's, It's everybody. I mean, well, it's fascinating because there was like, In the week leading up to that, there was this whole sort of conversation around boomers aren't taking this seriously. And all these like millennials are just like running around being like, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, you're at risk. And then their parents are like, you know, going to dinner and the gym and whatever. And so there was this idea of like millennials are taking this seriously and the older generations aren't. But then over the weekend, we saw that like, no, it's just everyone. Everyone is, uh, you know, having a hard time grappling with that. But the best thing that I can think about trying to do for myself when I'm writing those pieces is just like that you just need to have like a excess reserve of empathy right now because it's just so like I have not had a conversation with someone who – doesn't have their emotions heightened. Like, even if they don't really believe this, then they're mad that, like, life is being altered. But there's no one who's just kind of taken this easy and just sort of, like... So I feel like approaching any of it with an overwhelming or more than usual amount of empathy is, like, it's what you have to do. Well, there's there's this weird paradox of information with this stuff. Like, when you express a sentiment like 
listen to the experts. The flip side of listen to the experts is basically like, hey, don't roll your own take here. Like, don't don't get involved in like researching malarial drugs on Reddit and come up with your own reality here. Part of the take that I think is fair and, and valid here is kind of like, hey, everyone, don't do anything. Like, don't try to figure this all out yourself. Don't try to spread a bunch of information about it. Stick to these like basics and it'll be better for everyone. But that's like a weird message to deliver to people. Um, we have this sort of like, you know, research things, like learn the truth, but like there's no real benefit to like everyone being an armchair uh, coronavirus expert. No, it, but it, it's such a weird time right now because I think there's a school of thought, especially when it comes – like we've been dealing with all these information war problems basically. They've been like for, in the forefront of a lot of people's brains since the 2016 election. So you're about four years into this, like everyone hyper paying hyper attention to it. And in one sense, you're seeing now that like there's actually not that – much misinformation, you know, compared to the political stuff. Like there's not, there's the sort of the anti-malarial drugs thing. There's definitely the like put a hairdryer up your nose to get it. And like, and, and there are these things, but like broadly speaking, the information is like not too bad. Like yes. it's, it's like, there's a lot of helpful information. There's a lot. It's not the same as the, the political thing where there's so many actors, you know, like bombing their own takes in and that like it's kind of like a choose your own reality. Like we're all pretty much including like places like Fox News now, like we're pretty much dialed into this like, OK, this is bad. Where on the spectrum of bad is it? We don't know yet. Like but but that didn't really prepare us for any of this, I, I feel, because in politics, if you have 10,000 people believing in like a Pizzagate or a QAnon style thing, that's obviously very bad for like those people and like the health and discourse of whatever and it's toxic. But there's like there's not necessarily like a body count associated with that. Whereas like here, if you have one person who has really bad information and makes choices when they don't feel well to be out in society, like they become beginning of an outbreak cluster that then, as we know, grows exponentially. So it's like, like the stakes are really high for even just like the smallest bit of bad information to get through. So like, I see a lot of people out there trying to sort of put this on the grounds of like the political information war. And I think it's just like, as it stands right now, like it'll definitely get way more politicized down the road, especially when we turn corners and, you know, things start to feel a little bit more normal. And as the election gets closer, but like, we're not in that world right now. Like we're in this really kind of black and white world of there are facts that are going to keep you safe. And that's, that's sort of, I keep going back to this. There's, it's a very pure time right now to do like the work of journalism, not to sound like super like stuck up about it, but it's just like the who and what is super important. It's the only thing people have an appetite for. And then, you know, from like an opinion side or from a servicey side, it's like telling people to join a mutual aid network or, you know, telling people to donate here that you can do this or highlighting some people who are, you know, 3D printing masks or ventilator parts or things like that. Like, it's just a very, like, the simpler the work is right now, like, I think the more important it is because this idea of like, 
the epidemiology game theorist on Medium is not it's not a good play, even for people who have degrees in like, you know, in infectious disease. It's just we don't know. I'm really curious about how you and how we as a society are cohering around ideas right now. Like what affects how you think and how much are you relying on a sense of personal gut versus some sort of a larger framework for kind of saying, all right, this is the time to like um, call people who go to bars selfish. Three days ago, too soon. Now we're doing it. Well, there's definitely a sense. I was at BuzzFeed for six years and there was a general sense there that kind of got drilled into me of, you know, being quick, uh, you know, being responsive uh, to big events. So I feel like that's- you've you've huffed a lot of pure uncut internet. I understand. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right, <laughs> and, and I have the brain damage to prove it. Um, and that reflex is really tuned high right now. I I'll say this: like I feel right now, like everybody, in a way that it's, you know, since there's only one story in the world, like everybody is to some degree like a science or medical writer right now or an economics writer or you know it's like you're seeing like you know sports uh like i think the seattle times like took all of its sports reporters and just sent them out and was like you're doing science journalism you know and so like i think a lot of people are out of their comfort zone on this and i know i am especially and so the way that i'm coming to it is like i am really leaning on people who have like been studying virology for a little while or, or people who are, who are working in hospitals currently. Right. Uh, but it's certainly not like I'm relying on my gut probably, uh, I'm relying on like, I guess my morals to some degree more than I normally do. And then, but like less on my gut in terms of like, is this, I just feel like the stakes are just so high, but I do think I, I, I'm coming back to what you said earlier, which is like the reliance on like distilling some of these conversations. And I feel like that's something that I really have tried to do in the past three weeks is kind of pick and choose that and sort of drink from the fire hose so that nobody else has to. Well, I noticed because you included a bunch of those Italian tweets, tweets from Doctor yeah. from Italy, and those were literally the very thing that convinced me, not that I was a skeptic in any way, I'm just kind of alarmist in general, um, but like hanging out on like Bitcoin Reddit forums too long to not be paranoid. <laughs> but that was the thing where I was like, okay, this is like, this data point is the single best. If I had to try to convince someone, this would be my go-to. And it actually seems like a lot of people had that experience. Like a lot of people were radicalized by uh, firsthand accounts of Italian hospitals, basically. Totally. Yeah. The Italian doctors, there seems to be like a lot of writing talent. Uh, Like they weren't like a normal, like doctor tweets. I agree with that. And they are also like, there's like a level of candor there too. That was just like, really like, or not candor, like, I guess like drama is the wrong word. There was an emotional like valence to them that was like pretty high. So it was like pretty easy to to feel that. Yeah. To say there is like 
um, something horrific happening and it's uh, coming to you in 10 days is inherently a cinematic way to describe it. Right. But I'm really fascinated by this too, because the, so my, my favorite example is not actually not an Italian doctor, but is uh, this guy, Trevor Bedford, who's a evolutionary biologist and sort of infectious disease genome mapper, but he's a coder and a programmer and a designer as well. And he works out of Seattle and he is this like incredibly soft-spoken, really, you know, like kind, good, clearly like a genius, both in like the visual arts sense, but also in the, in the scientific sense and academic sense. And he, he has for the last like five years been sequencing the genomes of like the flu and different viruses to sort of watch mutations. And he got a hold of, he'd been following the virus, the coronavirus in China, and he got the genome for the first couple cases in Washington state. And he sequenced them and basically saw that this virus was, you know, despite these people not ever having contact with each other, they had very similar strains of this virus. And it was like, truly like, it's like the oh shit moment in a movie, he said, where, you know, he was like, I thought we had two more weeks, but it's been here for six weeks. Like, I didn't know. And he wrote that out in a very sort of scientific, elegant way on Twitter. And he just happens to be really good at putting together threads. Like he throws in some graphics, he throws in, you know, he's really clear and he's just scientific enough for people to like really trust it and, you know, able to put it in layman's terms enough. And that tweet blew up. And that was really, I think it was like the end of February, like February 28th or 29th or something. And I remember looking at it and being like, oh, God, it's here. And then that blew up in the newsroom. The, the Times wrote it up. It was sort of like the first alarm bell of like we have community transmission here. This is not just isolated cases of people from who've come from China. But there's such an interesting story with this where it's like this because this guy, just like the Italian doctors are really good at this medium and good at doing it in a way where you both trust it, but also like feel the kind of emotion behind it and can really understand what they're getting at, that the message is getting out in this way. And it's taking these paths around the internet and actually informing people. It's like actually what social media should be, you know, like the, it's the best story of that. And it, I really think he's, when this is all written, like it, in the United States, like, you know, he's in that sort of like that dramatic intro of, of this story as like the guy who, you know, drops his pen on the, or his coffee cup onto the floor when he sees, you know, the readout from the genome. Um, and so I think that too is like something that I've felt is the role that I can play during this is to just give this give those things oxygen. I, I think my biggest... role is the New York times journalist in the movie that gets made about this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I know not to self aggrandize, but the, at all, but the, the main difference kind of going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of like moving here to the times and moving to the opinion section, especially is I see a lot of the job, I still do the reporting. I still want to, you know, uncover things. I still want to do the, um, you know, tell really interesting stories, fun stories, whatever, you know, powerful stories. But the biggest thing that's in my head that wasn't there at BuzzFeed and other is, is sort of like the platform, the idea of the platform and sort of like the spotlight of that. You know, there's a lot of, I think probably everyone who works 
you know, for the opinion side, even if they're not an editor, is getting pitches from interesting people with interesting ideas. And it's like, I, you know, you're constantly thinking about those and trying to get the best ones up. And, and I think that there's this, this feeling that you can, using that, the Times is pretty substantial platform, like just getting those, those thoughts and ideas to more people. And, and I, and I see that as like a, as a considerable part of the job where I don't think I, I thought that before, I think, you know, when you're a reporter, sometimes you're like, all right, you know, I need to find the story. And then it's my job to kind of tell it and be the steward of that. And sometimes, you know, in opinion journalism, it's literally, it's just, you know, the act of putting the megaphone in front of the right person's mouth and letting them do the thing. Well, it's interesting because in a way, what you're doing isn't just using the platform, but you're kind of turning like the Italian doctor into a New York Times opinion writer. Like, I think something that kind of bothers me, actually, honestly, when I think back on like um, starting this interview with I don't like opinion is like, I don't necessarily like it when the tone when people sit down to write opinion. Like, I like an unvarnished account by an Italian doctor. That is a form of opinion. It's just not like, like written as this, like, you know, kind of like a bullet list uh, treatise. I mean, that's a little bit, I think what we're kind of getting at here is that this is the purest form. Like this crisis provides us with the purest form of what that kind of work is, which is that it's not transactional, right? It's not the person who's like, I've got a book coming out and I want to excerpt the book or something like that, which is fine, but it's definitely kind of a transactional version of that. This is like, we have a crisis. It is more important than ever before for the right information to be in front of the right people at the right time so that they make the right choices and keep other people safe. And we, you know, tamp down the destruction of this. And, you know, I... I've spent a lot of time in the past week and a half talking to these experts and in a way that I really never have before. I've always sort of felt very in control of like like in that gatekeeper role to some degree where I'm like, I have a story I, I want to tell and yeah. you are a, you're a vital part of it and I want to reflect that. But like this is almost like me like having these conversations and saying like, what can I do here? Like what's the best thing? Like I find myself saying like, what do you want New York Times readers to know? And I, I, I'm sure a lot of journalists everywhere are doing that. It's like, what do you want the people who are going to see this to take away from this? Or like, what what can we do? Or how, you know, who else do I need to be talking to? And those are good questions for journalists to always be asking. But I think now there's so much less of that, like cracking your knuckles when you sit at the computer and being like, all right, how do I turn this Word document into a beautiful canvas of, it's it's just like, there's an urgency and a like there's no preciousness right now with it it's just like how do i help before you go i would be uh, in remiss if i did not uh ask you about the hunt for the people who were unaware of coronavirus and you ultimately found and wrote about them. But I imagine there must have been a stampede of people trying to find the few people who did not know about it. I actually couldn't tell whether I was like racing people in that sense or not. So the idea for the piece came from, it was a week ago, Friday, and I was, as I am now, 
on Twitter for one of my, you know, 20 hours of, of uh, what we're all calling doom scrolling. And, uh, I camp a lot. I live, you know, out here in Montana and it's not infrequent that I go off the grid for a day or two. And I was just thinking like, I know that there are lots of people in the, in these positions who are constantly going off the grid for a month or, you know, 14 days. And so I just tweeted out, I was like, I wonder if there are people because, you know, two weeks ago was that I think it's going to be one of the weirdest weeks of my of all of our lives. Like everything changed between Tuesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon. And so I was like, what would it be like to come back to that? And I tweeted it and somebody was like, I got buddies who are on the, on the river uh, and they're coming off on Saturday. Uh, and I was like, cool. Can you tell them to call me when like they feel tethered enough to reality? And they did. And they were super game. But after that, I mean, that that was a really, it was kind of fun to be able to focus on that for a day or two and just like tell a story that people were going to not recoil in horror with. Uh, but probably the best part of that was afterward, I just got a stream of emails from people who had had either a similar situation. There was a mom who was like, my kid's on a wilderness like medicine trip and he came back this morning and I had to like sit him down and he didn't believe me. Like, you know, I had a bunch of people tell me their stories of like being out on during nine 11, but it was kind of cool. I kind of, by publishing it ended up getting this like anthology of like, I was in the wilderness and I missed this. But the, the most interesting part of writing that story uh, was that I approached it thinking like, man, this is like brutal for these people. Like what an awful way to have to figure, figure that out. Like I know I'm an anxious person by nature. Like if someone dropped that on me, I would just like, I can sort of feel like the sinking feeling that my stomach would have and just sort of that disbelief. But by the time I finished writing it and talking to all of them, they were so pleased that that's the way that they access the news. Like, and it's sort of that like, opened up like a fight or flight for them where it was like, okay, I live in this situation. Now I have to acquire like beans and toilet paper and Lysol wipes, you know, and it's like, this is what I got to go do. Uh, as opposed to all of us where we had to make all these choices where it was like, well, I don't know, is today the day I do my Costco run or, you know, is this really serious? And then you find your Italian doctor thread that makes you stock up. But it kind of threw in to me the feeling of like, how productive is it? for us to be mainlining the amount of information that we are. I've come up against my own personal wall with that. Like, I don't really personally need to know how healthy 35-year-olds can die from this. Like, I'm already pretty pretty nervous about that. Yeah. Like, it, uh, reading another story about that's not going to help in that sense. So I think we're all going to have to make a lot of choices right now of, like, what's going to help me either do my job or take care of my family and what is going to, like, what is just simply going to upset me for the purpose of being upset. Well, and there's a realistic question about our capacity. Like, to kind of constantly recalibrate along the lines of like, Italy only went up 8% today and it was 10% yesterday. That's good news. And then two days later, some bad news. If there's ever been a time, I think the takeaway is take the personal precautions that you outline in that pretty terse article that you can read in about four minutes. And then uh, there's nothing else to do. And I'm, I'm really hoping, I mean, I've been thinking about this from my 
columnist standpoint of what to do. And and I do think in the same way that the, the don't go out to the bars piece is, is irrelevant now. I think, I mean, we still have like some like spring breakers and like Mississippi not, you know, doing the right thing. But I think that just in the way that that kind of piece becomes sort of irrelevant, I think like this scaring is going to sort of become somewhat irrelevant or the like this is how bad it is like i don't think that we should ever shy away from the suffering or the i think we need to present the facts and be truthful about the harsh reality but i do think that there's going to be a role like we're going to kind of come up against like the endurance of our own anxiety or our own stir craziness or our own isolation like we're going to come up against that and we're going to have to make choices and i think there's going to be an opportunity to make the choice of like, how do I help? How do I be, how do I be a little bit more constructive here? Like what is a good way to take the fear and the anxiety and channel that towards something? Because I just think like, I think eventually people are going to tune out if it's just an onslaught of doom. So that I think is like what I'm, I'm hoping journalism like starts to offer i mean there's obviously the accountability and there's the documenting parts but then i think there's a part of like how do i help myself and other people get through it and i think i think that's why it's gonna there's this like pure kind of servicey opportunity for that i was seeing that um the governor of california gavin newsom was saying someone asked him about um like enforcing the lockdown and he was like well We'd prefer that people like do it socially, you know, and if they can't, like, we'll like look at our options. And there's something in that about, I actually think that the course that we will need to follow will be kind of inarguable. Um, but whether people do it through human cooperation versus tanks in the streets is actually like a huge difference in our history. And I think some of what you're describing as service journalism is kind of guiding people to do the right thing socially rather than governmentally. And there is something kind of terrifying about requiring the government to tell us how to handle this. It, I do think it would be a lot better if people are able to um, come to that as an informed personal decision rather than like something that's blaring through a bullhorn. It is, it's so weird. All of our jobs have changed and- Not me. I still make podcasts in a bunker. It's great. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, you, have, uh, you, have, you have great job security that people have so much time to listen to podcasts. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it, which is like, we've all become- just so obsessed with platforms in all different, like, like the platforms that we have with our various, like, you know, accounts and social accounts. And as, as journalists or, you know, like the, where we work is a platform and, and the size of that audience and the, and the audience that we are reaching. And I think that we have all kind of just naturally sort of like the, the way that the media works and the way that like the internet has worked has sort of incentivized that in a very, um, I don't mean selfish in necessarily a negative way, but it's sort of like, you know, you're very aware of your own stats or you're very aware of the audience that you've accumulated and yeah. whatever. And I think that this is kind of going to be an opportunity. I've already seen so many people realize that it's like, it's kind of, 
inverts how we think about that, that it's now sort of like, okay, how do I, how do I take that and, and use it instead of like doing the work to accumulate more of that personally? It's like, how do I just like give it now? How do I give that away and do that and, and sort of, you know, push on things. And that's, that's what has been attractive about like opinion journalism is that there is sort of that, like the world as you want to see it in some sense. And is a very clarifying moment for that. Charlie, thank you so much. I know you're busy right now. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to the podcast. Thanks, man. It was great. Hey, uh, thank you for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to my guest, Charlie, for taking the time to do this. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and to our intern, Marina Clementi. Thanks to the people who make this show possible, uh, Pit Writers and MailChimp. We will be back next week and all weeks. Rain or shine, uh, good times and bad with a new show for you.